You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. We are clearly living in an age of competing ideologies, uh, whether the ideologies of those who want to make America great again uh, or of those who want to topple the 1%. Uh, Everyone seems to have their camp that they have staked out as against everyone else. Uh, We then proceed to spend a lot of time and energy in social media terrain arguing as to why our ideology is right and theirs is wrong. But what we don't do enough of is thinking about the religious assumptions that having an ideology brings with it in the first place. In fact, David Coises says in his recently re-released book, Political Visions and Illusions, these religious assumptions are nothing less than idolatry hidden beneath a political veneer. We can see this, he argues, when we ask five basic questions about whatever ideology we happen to be considering. What is their creational basis? What do they see as the source of evil? Where do they locate the source of salvation? And what redemptive story do they tell? What inconsistencies have led to internal tensions with the idea within the ideology itself? To what extent are they able to account for the distinct place of politics in God's world? Uh, Here to help us think well about these questions is Dr. David Coises. Uh, He taught political science for 30 years at Redeemer University College in Hamilton, Ontario, where he still lives with his wife and daughter. He attends Central Presbyterian Church there. He is the author of We Answer to Another and the book we're talking about today, Political Visions and Illusions. Uh, Dr. Coises, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, uh, Coyle. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So let's let's just jump into this. what does what does idolatry have to do with politics? Well, idolatry, I think, um, as, a, as a Christian, I would confess that idolatry has to do with the whole of life. Uh, insofar as we are, are sinners, then we have a tendency to um, uh, to make idols out of things that God has created. So we, we, we properly appreciate the things that God has created, but um, um, in disobedience to, to him, we... we often try to, um, uh, well, more than just often, but we, 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 we have a tendency to make the things that God has created more than uh, they are and to put them in the place of God himself. Uh, in politics, I think that, that is certainly true, and that's something I think that we've been slow to catch on to. Uh, uh, individual freedom is a very good thing, but if, uh, if all of life and if the whole of society has to revolve around individual freedom, and if uh, if other legitimate considerations fall by the wayside, then I think that we have a pretty good sense that we're in uh, um, we're in the the presence of an idolatry. What so obviously we uh, uh, we always like to accuse the other side uh, of being idolatrous with uh, whatever their their political beliefs are uh, of valuing you know uh, uh, equal distribution distribution of the goods or valuing uh, uh, our our national patriotism or whatever. But uh, you you go a little bit deeper in this book and and you tie idolatry uh, not just to any one specific ideology, although you do go through several specific ones, uh, but to ideology itself. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about ideology? and uh, uh, what what there is about it that makes it so idolatrous? Yeah, um, uh, once again, as we're, um, as we're seeking to, um, uh, to do justice in God's world, to do justice in the, in, in the realm of politics, what some people would call public justice, 
uh, we we tend to fasten on to something that is that that God has created, something that's le- that's legitimate. Helping the poor, for example, is a, is a legitimate goal of uh, of the policy process. Uh, defending the freedom of individuals, uh, 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 um, uh, recognizing and, and protecting a particular national community. These are these are things that that in themselves are good. Uh, they're created by God. We are we are created as 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 uh, God's image. We are created to be um, um, to in relation to to other image bearers as well. And so you know we we, we look out for community. We look out for uh, for uh, um, individual responsibility, uh, individual freedom, if if you will. Uh, and we have a tendency to to make too much of of each of those things. So in in talking about idolatry, uh, I don't think that we can we can point the fingers and simply accuse other people of of of, uh, of worshiping idols because every one of us is caught up uh in um, uh in worshiping the idols of our of our particular age so you know we, we we're not the ones we're not like the ancient philistines or the ancient phoenicians who erected stone or or wood gods and, and literally bowed down to them but i think our idols are much more subtle uh the idol of success we want to be successful in life we want to uh um we want to have sexual fulfillment we want to uh, uh we want to be uh we want fame and fortune and all of those things can become idols in our lives uh, and how uh, uh, how does that tie specifically into political ideologies, right? How uh, how do we how do we how do we translate that idol making uh, into politics? Right, right. Well, um, if we um, if, if if we are in in the seeking of justice, if we take one consideration and make that the um, um, the the ultimate goal of the policy process. It may be that we're, we end up leaving out other legitimate considerations as well. So, for example, if we're talking about the um, uh, uh, the closed union shop, now the, the closed union shop is not is not um, uh, is not legal in the United States, but there are there are ways in which um, uh, uh, people who are working in a particular segment are are um, uh, in strongly encouraged to join a particular a particular union. Uh, that would seem to violate the notion of um, of individual liberty. If I want to join a union, then I should be able to. If I don't want to join a union, then I I, um, I should have the right not to join. And so, this, a number of states have uh, so-called right-to-work laws that enshrine this principle. If you're a, if you're a, an old-fashioned liberal, then then you would want to uh, defend the, uh, the 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 right of the individual not to join a union. If you're a socialist or a social democrat, uh, you would say, well, in order for in for people to be protected, in order for for workers to be protected within the workforce, within the workplace, then um, then they should, for the purposes of of class solidarity, then they should be uh, should be required to join a union because the the um, what they are getting out of their um, their uh, their workplace is something that has been uh, provided for them through union leadership. Right. Uh, uh, everyone benefits from it, so everyone should have to participate in the uh, uh, in the creation of it. Yeah, that's right. And so you know, but other considerations are going to be ignored. Um, the the right of individuals, the right of freedom of association, for example, might not be as um, um, 
as uppermost in the mind of a socialist or a social democrat. And so each of the, each of the ideologies tends to elevate uh, something that um, um, is a legitimate policy goal, and, and everything is made to revolve around that. Now you go through in the, in the book uh, what a uh, five, five or six different uh, uh, kind of dominant ideologies: uh, liberalism, conservatism, nationalism, uh, uh, democratism, uh, and socialism. That's right. Uh, I, I don't know that we uh, you know, people can pick up the book and, and read through it to uh, uh, to get all of the nuts and bolts of each of those. But which uh, uh, which of the ideologies do you think is the the most important one for? Uh, people in the Western world today to really think about, uh, and, and which which of those is it's it's there, but you know maybe not that big of a uh, uh, big of a challenge right now. Right, right. Well, I think as a North American, I think I would have to I would have to say that liberalism is the is the um, ideology that that is most dominant in the, in in in. Canada and the United States. Uh, historically, it was more dominant in the United States, but in many respects, I think that we in Canada have caught up with um, Americans and, and maybe even surpassed them uh, to, a, to a very large degree. Uh, but individual freedom is something that resonates with, um, um, I think, people living in the English-speaking democracies in, in general. Uh, you know, if if uh, if if I were in the Balkans right now, or maybe in Russia, I would think that nationalism might be the um, uh, the major uh, um, the major ideology to, to be contended with. But in many respects, I think I think the debates that we have here in Canada and the United States are between various types of liberals. So um, you know, people who style themselves conservatives are not for for that reason. Um, ceasing to be liberals, they are liberals, but they're they're merely contending for a a more conservative account of of, of liberalism, one that's attached to, for example, the um, um, Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence uh, and the um, uh, maybe the American founding. So, is it is it possible to be a Christian uh, and a liberal, or or really a Christian in any of these other ideologies? You know, a nationalist or or a Democrat. Uh, Small D Democrat or, or whatever, uh, without committing idolatry. Right. I, you know, it, it it may be because there's a you know there's a sense in which we all have to be conservative in the sense of respecting tradition and, and working within a tradition and working to to ch- working to try to change things within that tradition. There's a sense in which we can all be liberals insofar as we believe in freedom, we believe in individual liberty, and that's, that's something that's, that's very good. But if, uh, again, we, we start moving in more of an ideological direction, then I think we would have to, um, at, at the very least, um, test the spirits to see whether we are, are being consistent in following the, um, the, uh, following, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and you, uh, uh, a good portion of the book is spent uh, trying to equip Christians with the tools to do that, right? Uh, uh, trying to give us uh, an approach to uh, either transcend ideology or, or at least be uh, what do you what do you call it a, a non ideological alternative? That's right. Um, 
and I, I guess because you include the uh, the chapters in the book, you you believe it's possible. But I I do want to push back just a okay. little bit. Is it is it really possible to truly either transcend ideology uh, or be non uh, ideological? And and I will confess that at least some of my reaction to this is uh, the way uh, Christians, at least in the United States, I don't know if this is something Christians in Canada yeah. Canada do, but uh, the way that people tend to talk about denominations, right? Oh, I'm I'm I am not a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an Anglican or whatever i'm i'm just a jesus follower right, right. Uh, and i i at least internally if not actually externally always kind of roll my eyes uh and, and say look either you baptize infants or yeah. you don't right uh you're 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 either a baptist or you are not a baptist and you you may not like the title but the reality on the ground is you're you're one yeah, of those of things uh, isn't the same thing true about politics uh, is there really a a uh, transcend a way to transcend or or get around ideology well i, I you know that we'll never we'll never achieve perfection in this life you know i'm not I'm, i I, sure. I i think in that respect we're always caught up in the ideologies of of our age and uh, you know some people can see through them more easily than others um you know i i i think what we can do is to trust um Trust in the grace of God through Jesus Christ to to forgive us the sins that we are that we are caught up in and try to um, you know rely on the on the um, the the the, um, the the empowering of the Holy Spirit to to get us through life. Um, at the same time, I don't think that we can we can transcend uh, political parties, and I think that's where where things get a little bit more tricky, because if you're going to get involved in political mm-hmm. life, you can't just um, you know, maintain a kind of, um, uh, of of attitude of being above everything. Because if you're above everything, if you're just looking down and say a pox on all of your houses, uh, you know, that's not going to be very helpful either. So Christians inevitably are put in the position of trying to decide well which which party is going to be most uh, um, congenial to um, uh, to a, a, a Christian understanding of justice. Recognizing that that no party is ever going to uh, embody that in its entirety, right? And I, I really appreciate the way that you uh, uh, you break down each of the ideologies, uh, basically according to their biblical theology. Although, of course, it, uh, that's that's the the Christian in term, right? So each of them has a doctrine of creation and sin and redemption, uh, and uh, uh, then you contrast each of those with the, the Christian narrative. Uh, That's so, right. So uh, holding on to the Christian doctrine of creation and sin and atonement uh, and then working within the ideologies in the places where we can. Right, right. Uh, and your your model of this is is Abraham Kuyper, uh, and I, I I want us to uh, uh, to to talk uh, kind of extensively about Kuyper because I I, I love okay. Kuyper although I, I I am a little bit curious uh, you you dig into the Netherlands and Kuyper uh, is right. the place to go for kind of good uh, Christian uh, especially reformed but even more broadly Christian thinking about politics yeah uh, I am I am sort of curious why this is the model uh, rather than say the uh, the Puritan states in New England uh, the the English Commonwealth under Cromwell or or even the right. uh, the the Reform Swiss cantons. Uh, why, why does Kuiper get the focus here? Well, I think Kuiper, uh, because of the the era in which he was living in the nineteenth, late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, uh, was a, was a period of rapid secularization in, in throughout Europe in the in the post French Revolutionary uh, world, and sure. and he came up with a, a a way of of recognizing that recognizing that that we cannot um, how should we say we cannot 
bring about the the kingdom of God in all its entirety, but we can be witnesses to to the kingdom within uh, within political life and within the social life of our our respective nations. And I think he was uh, uniquely um, uh, positioned to be able to do that. Now, over the long term, it it, it may be that the impact that he had on the Netherlands. Uh, you know that it he was not entirely successful because the Netherlands has gone very far, especially since the 1960s, in a right. in an overtly secularizing direction. And it may be that that North America is now in a position similar to what um, to what Kuiper and his colleagues were facing at the end of the 19th and into the 20th uh, 20th centuries. So in many respects, I think the United States has has become much more divided along um, lines that were familiar in in France and in um, after 1815, after uh, the de- defeat of Napoleon, and uh, um, and I think we need to be able to 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 recognize that and and to face um, uh, very much of a pluralistic society where where these various um, visions and and admittedly illusions as well. Uh, Foot and to try to bring about a um, um, uh, to, to try to be witnesses within that particular context. Now the Puritans were not faced with that. Uh, you know the right. Puritans in, in New England and uh, and in in, um, in England itself were were trying to set up a kind of godly commonwealth, as it were, in a in New England in a new land where where they believed that they they would be able to um, start afresh. Now I don't think Kuiper ever thought that that starting afresh was uh, was um, uh, was a possibility at the time the time that he was he was living. Um, the idea of starting a new society um, it it sounds good, you know, in a in a um, maybe in a virgin territory, although it wasn't wasn't literally virgin territory. But uh, um, I I I I think the Puritans underestimated the extent to which they themselves were as much subject to sin as the people they were leaving behind in England. So for that for that reason, I'm not sure that the Puritans uh, uh, are are really good good model to follow. Right. So uh, uh, if uh, if we're not going to take the uh, the the Benedict option, right, and, yeah. and form the, uh, the the new society, Kuiper is kind of our right. option. He's the the other direction. I think so, but I don't I don't want to to. Um, um, sell short the Benedict option either. Um, you know, I've I've read Rod Dreher's book on that, and I, and I think in order to be able to um, uh, to have any kind of impact at all, I think we need to be able to establish uh, explicitly Christian institutions, uh, institutions that are that are confessional, especially if we're talking about educational institutions that are um, responsible for um, uh, uh, for for handing uh for handing down the christian faith and and uh, a christian worldview to the young i think it's it's necessary to have institutions that uh, that are that are set apart from the mainstream so uh uh with with uh, with with kuiper then and and again this is this is kind of the the half of your book that's not critical analysis of dominant ideologies is is right. zooming in on kuiperian thought uh, kuiper and his uh his uh uh Followers, uh, his descendants, I guess, for for lack of a better phrase. I don't remember. Do you go into Van Prinster? Uh, it's it's been a couple of months since I've read this book. Now, yes, I I, I start with Goon Van Prinster and then move on to uh, to to Kuiper. So. Uh, uh, I, I want to get into the the nuts and bolts of of what Kuiper and these other thinkers add, but I, I also want to start first with the question. If and if you don't know the answer to this, that's that's fine. Uh, but I, when okay. I look at the uh, the people 
who up until about 10 years ago uh, would have identified as Kuyperians. Um, I see people who are largely either politically or theologically liberal, and I, I... I, I, I hmm. think that's true of kind of the, the broad stroke of them, maybe with some exceptions here and there. Uh, you might have, right. you know, a Francis Schaeffer speaking, you know, very, very uh, well of Kuiper. But beyond that, okay. uh, when, I, when I think about the people that 10 years ago I would have thought of, oh, yeah, this is the person where you go to read the modern Kuiper scholar. Uh, hmm. There are people who don't necessarily line up either theologically or politically with Kuiper. Uh, what, what's the deal with that? Right. Well, any... any um thinker who has been influential is going to have um, disciples that, that take the tradition in different directions. So I don't, I don't think there's anything unusual about that. Um, you know, part of the, 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 the chapters where I deal with, with Kuiper, I also deal with um, uh, um, Catholic social teachings of Leo Thirteenth and, and some of his heirs as well. And it's true also that the people have taken this principle of subsidiarity, which comes out of um, the social encyclicals of Leo and um, Pius XI and John Paul II, um, in in different directions, you know. So you might you might take them in more of a maybe a social democratic direction. You could take them in maybe a libertarian direction. I think that's that's um, that, that, I think both of those are a bit of a stretch for um, neo Thomism as well as for neo Calvinism. But uh, but you are you will have people that simply disagree on the on um, on the on the, what the legacy says for um, for the 21st century. Sure. Well, uh, uh, again, that was sort of uh, for for my own curiosity purposes, and I think that's that's changed in the last decade, especially with this translation project, uh, as, as Kuiper right. is getting more accessible to more people. I think we're we're starting to see some shifts exactly. there. Um, that's right. Yes. So, uh, so what does uh, what what does what do Abraham Kuiper and uh, uh, Herman Duyverd and uh, Grun van Prinster uh, have to teach uh, modern Christians about the right way to interact with with politics and with the dominant ideologies? Right. Well, I think they have. They. Uh, I think their their principal contribution lies in uh, in in something that's known as sphere sovereignty. Um, it's also been called, um, I guess, since the late 70s. Uh, it's been called differentiated responsibility. Um, I myself, especially in my second book, talk about the pluriformity of authorities. So God has given us um, each of us as as His His image uh, authority over. Um, um, over his creation, it means that we have authority over each other. We have authority over ourselves. Um, I think that authority, in many respects, is uh, is, a, is a better way of understanding what is typically known as freedom. So, freedom and authority are not in um, are not opposites, but I think they're they're very much um, uh, bound up with each other. So, insofar as we are free to do something, we have authority to do it uh, under God and under the under the public laws of, of the state. Uh, um, uh, and and I think that's uh, uh, important. And that authority is a dispersed authority, so it's found within different um, different institutions, not only amongst individuals, but also um, um, it's found in the state, it's found in the institutional church, it's found in uh, 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 family life, it's found in a whole variety of organi- organizations. And so um, uh, you know, to try to uh, reduce all law, for example, to the public law of the state is, is to do a, a great disservice to the various communities in which we are embedded, in which we, in some cases, voluntarily uh, uh, join. Uh, and I think that that recognition of the, the place of, of 
uh, community and individual and those institutions and communities of which we are part, I think that's something that, that that's very valuable. And God has conferred his authority on those, those institutions uh, um, quite directly. And, uh, um, and I think that's something that, um, uh, that is, uh, that would be in opposition to, for example, liberalism, which tries to make um, all community into, into voluntary associations. So John Locke started that already. Um, well, Thomas Hobbes, really, in the, in the 17th century, and John Locke um, later in the 17th, in the, in the very beginning of the, of the 18th century, to say that, that political community uh, comes about as a result, result of the voluntary association of individuals for, uh, for specific purposes. And I think that that is not really true to our experience, because um, I was born a citizen of the United States, even though I did take on Canadian citizenship later, later on. I was born into a particular birth family. I was born into a church community. And the most important institutions are, are ones that we are are um, um, uh, that we are part of uh, from birth it's not something that we have actively entered into and even marriage you know I chose to marriage uh, marry a particular woman but uh, but once that that choice was made then uh, then marriage is a is a binding community on us right and if uh, if marriage is nothing more than a choice that two people make right then right. then uh well as as we've seen in the last 20 years in the western world then sort of all all rules governing that are off uh because all that matters is the choice yeah well not all not all rules i don't think we would say that all rules are off but but it's it's more like the, the sort of rules that arise out of a private contractual relationship right so marriage is not so much an institution as a, as a private contract between two individuals right uh so so uh, this this idea of these these different spheres, right? This uh, I, I like I like the term sphere sovereignty, although um, right. uh, the the responsibility idea I think is a good one too. Uh, right. uh, what do we do when there's a when there's a disagreement over the nature of the spheres? Uh, so right. let's uh, let's assume that we you and I both agree on this is this is the right biblical way to to approach uh, uh, thinking about living in the world. And there's I, I forget how many spheres Kuiper identified. It was like seventeen or eighteen or something like that. Um, well, let's let's say we we ask the question. Um, all right, where do uh, the wages of employees fit? Which which sphere is that? And I say, well, that that question belongs to the sphere of the government uh, to establish a minimum wage. And you say, no, 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 that belongs to the sphere of business uh, to uh, establish the uh, wages of every employee and just the employers and you know the unions or right. whatever work it out with the management. Right. Uh, how do we how do we arbitrate that disagreement? Because that's that's right. going to eventually lead uh, to two very different looking societies depending on which of us wins that's right. yeah yeah and that's why i think a, a recognition of this differentiated responsibility or pluriformity of authorities is is, is so significant so there's a sense in which in which it's a, a shared responsibility uh you know the, the primary responsibility has to lie within within the uh, the work community itself uh, recognizing that that everybody within the work community holds a position of authority and that's something that I that I lay out more in more detail in my second book. So, as authority is not just um, the the hierarchy or the higher ups. Everybody has an authoritative office. 
uh, when I was teaching, I used to, I would tell my students that that um, not only do I, as the instructor, have authority, but but the students have authority as well. Not the same authority. It's uh, it's not a reciprocal authority, but nevertheless, it's an uh, the student uh, student is an authoritative office that that everyone is 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 bound to respect. So I w- I would say that that under this principle of sphere sovereignty. I, w- I would first say that the responsibility belongs within the workplace. If there are disputes about that, then perhaps a, a labor union needs to be brought in, and then, and then as, a, as a last resort, possibly government. Now, government can set certain um, uh, certain framework within which uh, negotiations between uh, labor and management take place. Uh, but that would be in the background. They, they would not have the primary authority for that. Right, but in, in, in that case, you're... Uh... You're you're claiming victory in the argument without without convincing me that no that actually that begins with government right that is that right. that wa- wage of the worker is legitimately starts with uh, my authority as a perhaps as a citizen rather right. than my authority okay. as an employee or or well no I, my authority as a as a, a member of a particular workplace right so so why. Why did, what is your view of how the spheres are divided trump my view of how the spheres are divided? Right, yeah, and that's not something that you can do very easily. You know, you, I think you have, to, um, uh, you have to, to show the results of a particular approach. You have to show the consequences of a particular approach. Um, if one approach leads to constant um, um, labor unrest, then it, it might be time to go back to the drawing board and say, let's try something else. And if somebody has a principle that, that more easily accounts for the uh, um, for the legitimate place of employees within a within a workplace, then that itself might be uh, uh, might convince enough people to come on side. I, uh, again, so it, it it almost sounds like there's sort of a a sphere chaos, if if that's the right way to put it, right? If if there are these disagreements. Um, we just kind of make our arguments and work things out as as best we can. There's there's not an there's not an overarching decision making sphere that we can appear to. Is is that right? Oh, I wouldn't say that. No, as um, and from the very beginning, societies have um, have functioned under ver- under a, um, a common legal framework. You know, in a, in a, perhaps in patriarchal times in the Old Testament, it would be it would they would be localized. Uh, communities that would come up with what what we would call a customary law, um, you know, throughout the ancient world, this this was the case. Except within the the uh, the more consolidated empires of Babylonia and Egypt and Assyria, and, and so forth. But, uh, but but there's always going to be some kind of a, of a framework that enables us to adjudicate disputes. In uh, for the last 500 years, that's been the state, the modern state, which has uh, is said to possess sovereignty over a particular well-defined territory. And then within that context, when, when uh, um, disputes arise, uh, the, then there is an appeal to public law. There's an appeal to courts. So, no, it's not, it's not a chaos at all, no. Um, you know, it's not to say that, that everybody will agree with the decisions that have, that have been made. And this is why, um, why legislative bodies exist, to try to, uh, uh, to, to fine-tune uh, the ways that we, um, we settle our differences within the public realm. Yeah, and, and and I think this is uh, uh, maybe maybe in in some of Kuiper's later works he uh, he he hammers this out a little bit, um, but uh, this is one of my 
objections, I guess. I, I think this is a point of weakness, at least in his lectures on Calvinism, on the, on the Stone okay. lectures, uh, where he, he says something to the effect of it's the job of the state uh, to to guard the, the lines between the other spheres. That's right, yes. Uh, and yes. Uh, I don't... I don't see how you keep the state from just consuming all of the other spheres. That's right. This is something that I addressed in the last chapter of, of uh, political visions and illusions. Uh, right. You know, because um, uh, the, the problem of tyranny is something that political philosophers have, have had to deal, deal with for, you know, for about 2,500 years, at least since the time of uh, Plato and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so forth, and and there's no easy way around about that. I, I think I think the state does have an obligation, as part of its uh, divine, divine mandate to do public justice, to try to adjudicate the uh, the boundaries amongst the various spheres in society. But then, of course, as we all know, that it's there's there's a, a great possibility of the state itself getting out of hand. And so, um, um, uh, in the um, in the larger Western tradition of political theorizing, um, there there has been a um, um, a recognition of the need for um, a constitutional mechanisms to prevent that happening. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the 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 lower magistrates. This is what we find in John Calvin. Is what we find in Thomas Aquinas. Something that we find in Johannes Althusius. You know, lower magistrates that are that are authorized to check the uh, the possible overweening power of the chief magistrate. And uh, and constitutional democracies um, have their counterparts to that. So, in the United States. Um, just yesterday was the uh, was Independence Day in the United States, and that's where uh, Americans uh, observe the, uh, the founding of, of their country. And the uh, the American founders, which are, are famously called the checks and balances, into the Constitution. You know, the president cannot simply call all the shots, but uh, uh, but there's a Congress and the courts that 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 have certain powers that will keep the president um, in check, or at least that was the hope of the founders. Uh, you know, whether they have been effective. Over the last um, uh, more than two centuries, that's uh, that's an argument that we that we can have. Uh, but nevertheless, there was an intent, intention on the part of the founders to try to ensure that uh, that a chief executive would not uh, would not accumulate too much power. In Canada and other Westminster democracies, we have something called responsible government. So if the uh, the, the government of the day, uh, uh, led by the prime minister, no longer enjoys the confidence of the majority of the um, uh, the members of parliament, then they can simply vote to um, um, to defeat a government, and then the government must resign. And then um, uh, the queen or her representative will then appoint a new government, or else um, dissolve parliament and a new election will be held. And so again, that's a way of of, of trying to ensure that uh, that the uh, the political executive does not become too powerful. But isn't isn't that just hoping that the the sphere will self-restrain? Um, to some degree, yes, yes, and that that's the um, um, you know this is uh, uh, there there is another possibility as well, and I think it has to do with the with the other spheres uh, actively working to maintain their integrity in the face of a possibly overwinning state. So um, uh, the uh, um, uh, one person whom I mentioned in my um, um, I think in both of my my books here is is a man by the name of Yves René Simon, who is a, a French neo Thomist uh, Catholic thinker who taught at the University of Notre Dame for about ten years before he moved on to the University of Chicago. 
uh, in the um, in the late 1940s, and he said that um, that uh, um, a political regime, as as he understood it, is one in which you have uh, a variety of authorities that are actively working to check each other. So he says that 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 in a political regime, private property, he says, is a, is uh, um, a bulwark against a tyrannical state. Uh, an independent church organization is a, is a bulwark against a tyrannical state as well. And there are all of these institutions that uh, that if they're functioning well, if they're functioning smoothly, if they are if they are vital institutions, then then their very existence is something that helps to keep the state in check. All right. Well. Uh... Uh, Dr. Koizis, uh this this is all great stuff, and uh, hopefully it is uh, it is wetting our listeners' appetites to go out and, and pick up this book. Uh, uh, the practice here on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is to give the guest the last word, uh, so I will do that now. Uh, any anything you want our listeners to know about uh, the book, political visions and illusions, uh, politics in general, uh, life, the universe, and everything, just uh, take it and run with it. Right. Well, I think what I what I can, can, will will say is a, is about some of the changes that I um, that that contributed to the second edition because it's it's a rather thorough reworking of the uh, the original book, which was published in um, uh, back in two thousand three. Uh, shortly after I um, published that the the first edition, I began to see that that the polit- particular political ideologies are not are are not simply about idolizing a particular aspect of God's creation or human society. But but there are really these redemptive narratives, these these salvation stories that run underneath the, the ideologies and are underpinning them. And so that's uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, differences uh, in, the, in the second edition, because I thought uh, this narrative approach to the ideologies is something that I thought needed to be um, to be brought into into the foreground. It was there in the first edition, but not, not quite as explicitly as it is in the second. Um, another thing that I that I added to the second edition is a concluding ecclesiological postscript. So the book as a whole is written from the vantage point of a member of the body of Christ with an interest in in political life. Um, insofar as we are are members of the body of Christ, we are members of God's church in the in, in the very broadest sense, and that's something that that affects um, every area of life in in in, in what we do. Um, uh, the 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 first edition has been used as a textbook in in theological seminaries, and I thought that by adding uh, 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 this postscript, uh, it might make it more serviceable for use in in seminaries. So the postscript is about the role of the institutional church. In other words, the church that meets weekly, maybe twice weekly, maybe maybe thrice weekly if there's a, a midweek. Uh, uh, um, the Wednesday service, for, for example, uh, the church that gathers in um, synodical uh, conventions on an annual or maybe a triennial basis, uh, and, um, and churches um, sometimes are in the positions of having to weigh in on, uh, on matters of political life. And so, but, and there, but there are many ways in which churches can go astray on this as well. There are some denominations that um, pass resolutions in favor of, for example, a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine, or a $15 per hour minimum wage. And I think that goes well beyond what the institutional church ought to be doing. So my, ecclesio- my concluding ecclesiological postscript is, to, is um, setting forth some principles that I think might help us to make our way through the, the, the thicket of the institutional church weighing in on matters that touch on politics. So that's, the, that's one 
um, uh, addition to the second uh, to um, to the book in the second edition, and uh, and then there are also discussion questions at the end as well. So I hope that will that will help to uh, to spark um, um, careful thought and uh, amongst readers of the book. Well, thank you again, Dr. Koizis, for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. Uh, If you have questions or comments, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. And be sure to pick up a copy of Political Visions and Illusions from InterVarsity Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.